Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Philemon chapter 1, verses 8 through 18. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Jen. Hey, those of you that were here last week uh, know that uh, Larry Severson uh, shared his testimony about um, the tragic accident that took the life of his wife and his journey of forgiveness and how in the course of nearly two years he and his family Uh, work through issues of um, forgiveness, dealing with the young man who was a distracted driver and ran through that that stop sign and and took his wife, Karen's life. And uh, he last week read um, a letter. It was a victim impact statement that he had the opportunity to share in court. And in that letter, uh, he makes an appeal um, for the young man Uh, who was responsible for the accident. And in that appeal, he addresses the the court and he asks that the young man not receive what the law would prescribe, but instead what Christ would call for. And that would be forgiveness. And as well as offering his own forgiveness, Larry then recommended to the court and to the judge that Uh, the young man, um, no criminal charges would be uh, pursued and that uh, he, in fact, um, the case would be dismissed against him. A remarkable story of forgiveness. And uh, Larry shared that with us last week. You know, it was the first time he publicly ever shared that with a group of people. took a lot of courage. Those of you that were here, it was a very emotional time, but it was a powerful time. And I want to encourage you, those that were touched by his words, 
those of you that are dealing with your own issues of, of forgiveness, uh, and all of us do, uh, at different times in our life, to different extents, and we can get stuck there and, and really struggle. I know uh, I have, and um, Larry and his testimony is a reminder of um, the first step is just acknowledging to the Lord, you know, Lord, I'm, I really maybe don't want to, but I know you want me to. And I know because you want me to, you will help me do what I can't do on my own. And, and forgiveness is a journey, especially when we have been harmed or someone has wronged us in, in a real severe way. Um, but I want to encourage you to stay on that journey. And I want to encourage you to, um, to seek the Lord, to seek the Lord's strength and guidance, and if necessary, also the guidance of others, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, maybe a, a real skillful Christian counselor uh, who can help walk you through those steps because we don't want to get stuck in unforgiveness, right? And sometimes when we do, it may feel good for the moment, like I'm going to give you a measure of what you gave me and then some, Jen Barnlin, right? Not really, I'm just using that as an example. Um, but you've heard me say the last two weeks in our study of Philemon, that unforgiveness and the desire to just remain just kind of in that bitterness and hold a fault or a wrong against somebody, it's like trying to kill a rat, but taking the poison yourself. In the end, the person who is hurt the most is the person who's holding on um, to the offense. And I'll tell you something. When you get to that place where you're able to forgive. And by the way, forgiveness doesn't mean that um, the person doesn't take responsibility. It doesn't mean uh, that it's like let bygones be bygones. Okay, that's not what it means. Nor does it mean you have to continue in a relationship that may be abusive or in which that person continues to offend you. Doesn't mean that either. All right? Uh, but it means that in your heart, as far as you're concerned, to the extent that you're able, and with God's help, you are releasing yourself from the bondage to that person and the offense that they have committed, or maybe in some cases, at a distance, continue to commit. Okay? So it's not about being a victim. In fact, on the contrary, it's about having victory over that offense or the offending party. Okay? So Larry talked about that. I want to encourage you, those of you that are struggling, just to stay with it, okay? Don't remain stuck in unforgiveness. And really, that's the theme of our, of our book that we're going through here in July, the book of Philemon. It's, it's forgiveness. Uh, 25 verses. You know, Paul, when he wrote the New Testament epistles, there were only three people that he wrote to directly in a personal letter. Uh, he writes two to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. He writes one to Titus, and he writes one to Philemon. So three individuals that he would address in the New Testament through a personal letter. Uh, the rest he's addressing people as he addresses whole communities of believers. Um, 
So he's addressing uh, Philemon, and Philemon is a, uh, a person of substance, a well-to-do person in uh, Colossae. It's a city in Asia Minor, in the Lycus Valley. You have Colossae, you have Ephesus, uh, within about 100 miles of each other. Very influential place, uh, kind of a crossroads from Asia into Europe and down into uh, Palestine or uh, the Holy Land. Uh, strategic place. That's why Paul did uh, missionary work there. But Philemon was a well-to-do person there in Colossae, and he and his family, his wife and his son, they hosted a house church there in Colossae. And you might recall last week I told you that it wasn't until about the third century that followers of Christ actually met in buildings that we would call a church. Prior to that time, they would meet in homes or house churches. And this was the case in Colossae. And so Philemon, a very substantial, influential person there, uh, had a church that met in his home, uh, as was the custom of that time. Uh, And by the way, he was a Gentile convert to Christianity. Paul was a Jew, uh, his wife, his son. And then in that family and in that, that home, there were slaves. Uh, Onesimus was a a house servant Uh, he was a runaway slave and Paul is writing this letter to Philemon having met Onesimus having shared Christ in the gospel and discipled Onesimus to the point where Paul saw Onesimus the way a father would see a son in the spirit as a spiritual father Paul is under house arrest Uh, in Rome, about 60 to 62 A.D. Um, That's the the dominant, kind of the predominant thought of scholars. There's some that would argue, no, he was in Ephesus when he wrote. But uh, most believe he was in Rome under house arrest. And he wrote uh, what he called, what we call the four prison epistles. He wrote uh, the epistle to, or the letter to the the Ephesians, Right? He wrote uh, to the uh, Philippians, he wrote to the Colossians, and he wrote to Philemon. Those are the four prison epistles. And it was during that time uh, that Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, made his way from Colossae to Rome. And that was not unusual. A runaway slave would go to a large metropolitan area where they could just kind of blend in. Okay? And... We're not sure how uh, he and Paul came into contact, but they did. Paul discipled him. Onesimus becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, becomes active in Paul's ministry of the gospel. And now Paul is writing a letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, that Philemon would receive him back not as a runaway slave who is returning and is going to receive his just, right, reward, if you will, the punishment that was common. Uh, A runaway slave could be physically punished. Um, They could be uh, sold. The slave owner might sell the slave off for profit. Um, sometimes even worse, there'd be capital offense. It was not uh, unusual, runaway slave, to be crucified as a criminal. 
Or, in some instances, they'd be received back and an iron collar would be placed around their neck that would say, I'm a runaway slave, return me to my master. And it would be permanently placed around their neck. So there were a variety of different punishments, different severities. But Paul is saying, receive him back, not as a runaway slave, but as a brother in Christ, who is now more useful than ever to you, as he is to me. Because he now is a partner in the work of the gospel. And Paul is writing this letter, this petition, the same way that, that Larry Severson wrote and addressed the court last week. We read that, or we heard that letter read, where Larry was petitioning on behalf of the young man who was a distracted driver and ran that stop sign and ended in the death of his wife. And Larry is petitioning on behalf of that young man. So that young man would not receive what the law dictates he would receive, but instead what the gospel would dictate. That yes, there's responsibility taken, but in that ownership and responsibility, there's forgiveness that's offered. That's just so unusual in our day and age. Imagine how unusual this letter would be, how countercultural it would be in Paul's day. You have to understand something. 120 million people in the Roman Empire at this time, nearly half of them were slaves. So the laws concerning slaves had to be very strict, right? I mean, if you're going to control half your population, um, but Paul is writing a letter and he's asking Philemon to do something that personally to Philemon would have great consequences. Now think about this. Um, Paul is writing this letter to Philemon that he'd receive Onesimus back, not as a runaway slave, not to be punished, but as a brother in Christ, useful for the gospel, right? A whole different standing. Of course, we know that the gospel is a great equalizer. There's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor freed, right? But all, according to Galatians 3.28, are one in Christ. And so the gospel breaks down the socioeconomic barriers, the gender barriers, okay? Uh, barriers of ethnicity. The gospel breaks all those barriers and calls those who are followers of Jesus to a new way of living, to a new way of relating that is contrary to the way people outside of Christ relate to one another. Paul is asking Philemon to do just that. You see, because this whole letter, these 25 verses, really contain an example of Christ's love pleading for us. 
Christ sacrificing on our behalf. Reconciling us to God, our Heavenly Father. Not holding our sins against us, but forgiving us. And making that possible through the sacrifice of His own life on the cross. The shedding of His blood that we might have forgiveness of sin, be reconciled to God, have new life and eternal life. And the the letter to Philemon is a picture of that. In fact, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright uh, begins his writings on the life of Paul with the letter of Philemon because he says the book of Philemon, in this letter, in these 25 verses, you really see Paul's understanding of the gospel. The themes that you find here in this letter, you see throughout his New Testament writings, okay? So if you get Philemon, you're going to get Paul in his other writings. You might pass over it because it's only 25 verses, and yet it is powerful because it really is a picture of the gospel, what that looks like lived out in community, in practical sense, when people are committed to following Jesus. So here's Philemon. He has a moral dilemma. Now think about this. He, he wants to please Paul because Paul is his father in the gospel too. It's likely that he and his family came to faith in Christ as a result of Paul's ministry. So he's likely to want to please his spiritual father. But then he also feels the pressure of of maybe other slaves in his household or in the community that he's a part of and wanting to make sure that they maintain a submissive posture to their masters. So while he wants to please Paul, there's also the the, the cultural and social pressure of how I treat this person, how will that be seen by other slaves? And if they think they can get away with something, what will that mean? How will that upset the ebb and flow of society in our in our community where we live. Then there's the pressure to maintain family affairs and the business that he owns and and his standing in the community. What if he does do what Paul's asking? What would the other business owners look think? What would other slave owners think? What would the community think If he did something radically different, if he made a departure from what the culture demanded would happen with a runaway slave. Do you see it? All these different points, this moral dilemma that he's struggling with. And then, Paul has already told him in the introduction in in verses 1 through 7 that you're a model, you're a role model of what it means to be a Christ follower to others. In fact, Paul tells him in this letter, in the introduction, you are one who refreshes others. And in the first seven verses, Paul says, or essentially says, you know, the character of one who forgives is going to be a person whose life is rooted in faith and as an expression of that faith, there's love. And that love is seen in the way they treat others And particularly when it comes to forgiving offenses. So he's already told Philemon, I see that in you. And you're a role model to others. 
And so he has that pressure going on. What am I going to do? I'm supposed to be a role model to Paul, the one who's my spiritual father. And yet, what are the neighbors going to think? What are the other business owners going to think? What are the slaveholders going to think? That I'm getting soft on runaway slaves? What does this mean to me? Can you see all that? <laughs> and then finally, um, can I be trusted to live the message of the gospel? Now, you can identify with that, and I can identify with that because. We experience the same thing. Do you know that there are things in our culture that are permissible? There are ways of living that are completely acceptable. In fact, there are things that people think we should do or ways that we should live that people think or, or would say, that's right, you go ahead and live that way. Go for it. Because the culture says that's how it should be. And yet you're faced with the message of the Gospel. You're faced with the instruction and life in Jesus. And so we have that moral dilemma too. How are we going to respond? And we feel the pressure of, well, how would that affect my business? Or what would the neighbors think? Or what would my family members think? Or, or man, how? I don't know. This is pretty radical stuff if I'm all in for Jesus. I mean, it really is going to look different. I'm really going to stand out. And then what does that mean? Can any of you relate to that? At all? And so really, we're all Philemon. Struggling with the pressure between culture and the call to follow Christ and what that means in our life and how we're to live when we take that seriously. What does the Gospel look like when we're all in? What does it look like when we say, yes, I'm going to take you serious and I'm going to trust you and take you at your word, Jesus. And I'm going to live and follow you. Ooh. Right? So we all can relate to Philemon. But in this issue of forgiveness in particular, I know that when I'm struggling to forgive someone, oftentimes I'll compare their sin and forget about my own. Right? Politicians do this all the time. They're really good at it. Sorry if there are any candidates here. I call you to live like Christ. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But look at my opponent. Right? So I say, oh, yeah, I slept with one person. I only had one extramarital affair, but they had five. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, I fudged a little bit on my income tax, but... but Man, they have scounded with lots of money over there. And so then we're left trying to choose the lesser of two evils, right? But that's not how Christ would have us live. But you know what it's like. When you want to avoid your own sin, it's easier to look at the sin of somebody else and point that out. Right? Um, there was a 10th century desert father. He was a monk. His name was Abbot Moses. This is what he said. He said, those who are conscious of their own sins have no eyes for the sins of their neighbors. 
Now, where do you think he learned that? He learned it from the teachings of Jesus. Look what Jesus said. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? When you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. You know what that makes you? Law guy. Right? Law guy. That's what it makes you. Law guy. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now, I'm going to call us all out here, including myself. When I don't want to deal with my own sin, I start looking at the speck in somebody else's eye, don't I? As if that somehow justifies Mine. Well, mine is less than his or hers. Look at her. Look at him. Okay? Sin is sin. Sin is sin. All right? I used to have a friend, um, Bobby Mercado. He was a recovering heroin addict and a chaplain at the L.A. County Jail. And he used to get up in front of the guys in the jail. And he'd say, sin is sin. He goes, it doesn't make, he goes, it doesn't matter whether you're sipping a wine bottle on Skid Row or drinking a margarita in the Bonaventure Hotel. All right, that, that's what he would say to the guys. And, and I'm not trying to imply that if you have a margarita, because I enjoy one once in a while, that's... <laughs> but in the world that he lived and the people he ministered to, it was kind of an all-or-nothing proposition, right? He couldn't leave any room there for them. That's what he used to say. Sin is sin. All right. I love this. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 22. Jesus has just finished talking, and, and, and part of the discussion is that of forgiveness, dealing with sin. And, Paul, and Peter wants to show that he's a really good student and that he's going to go over and above and get extra credit for what he's learned. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, right? Because seven's like the magical number in the Bible. And Peter's saying, hey, pretty cool, right? I'm really getting it, Jesus. I'm following you. Up to seven times, Jesus? Aren't I a good student? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, right? But... 77 times, or 7 times 70, which is 490, I think. That's hyperbole. But you know what it means? It means that there's no, there is no limit to grace. And when we're called to extend grace to others, the same grace that we receive freely from God Himself. Now, He's having another conversation in Luke, Luke 7, verses 41 through 43, Jesus is having a conversation. He's at the home of Simon the Pharisee. And a woman comes in and breaks an alabaster jar bottle and begins to anoint Jesus with oil. 
And Simon is thinking to himself, oh man, what kind of, what kind of teacher? If this guy were really a, a, a true uh, a rabbi, prophet, follower of God, if he only knew, he wouldn't let this woman <clears throat> of questionable character do this. This is what Simon's thinking. Jesus knows what he's thinking. He says, Simon, I want to I wanna share something. I'm going to teach you something. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Duh. Right? Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And they carry on the conversation. If you get just a few verses down from there, Jesus says this. Jesus says, the, the one who has been loved much forgives much. The one who has been loved much forgives much. Those who have received the love of God through the gift of salvation. God's grace is unmerited favor to you and to me. For God so loved the world that He gave the life of His only Son. God demonstrates His love in that this, while we were still sinners, He sent Christ into the world to die for us. When we fully receive that love, and we recognize the cost and the value and how precious it is, We recognize how much we're loved. How much we've received. How can we not help? Right? But love and forgive others. Okay? That's the point. You know, there are people that follow Christ. They go to Bible study. Man, they're, they're, they can tell you what this book says. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if they don't have love, they, they have nothing. In fact, John writes this in 1 John. This really gets to the point. We love because He first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. I, don't blame me. I didn't say it. John wrote it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. If you don't get this, you miss the gospel. You really do. I do. So here we look at this letter. And we put ourselves in Philemon's place. 
And we can each do that in our own way, can't we? And the question is, what are we going to do with the appeal of the gospel in our life and upon our life to follow Jesus, to model Christ's life? What are we going to do with that? How are we going to live that? In fact, I have to share something with you. That's pretty good. Let me get it here. Uh, There it is. Today's message is the action of one who forgives, and a summary of it is this. The action of one who forgives conforms to the image of Christ. Christian forgiveness pictures the gospel. It's the living representation of Christ and His actions on our behalf. Forgiveness always serves the greater purposes of God. It is by nature redemptive and restorative. It's pretty good, huh? I wrote that. (laughs) All right. Let's look down at your path, at your at, at your book of Philemon, okay? I'll go through this quickly. These verses, and I'll just pick some things out for you. Paul is going to appeal on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon. Last week, I told you there was a little known, or at least little known now, but it was known then. Um, there was an exception to the rule of rather than returning a slave to the slave owner, there was something called by hearth or by altar. And what it allowed, it was allowed in Roman law that a runaway slave could seek asylum, if you will, at a place where there was an altar. Ostensibly, so they could consult, if you were a pagan, the gods as to what you were going to do. And hopefully, in that consultation, the gods would tell you to go back and do the right thing. And you would return yourself, even though you would face possible punishment. Now, if a person had a house and they had a hearth, oftentimes the hearth was an altar. And so a house could be a place of asylum too, by altar or by hearth. And a person could actually house a runaway slave, give them asylum long enough for that slave to determine what they were going to do and hopefully influence them to do the right thing. Check this out. Paul's a Jew, right? The New Testament, or the Old Testament, the Jews were who? They were slaves, weren't they? And so in the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, God instructs the Jewish people not to forget where they came from and who they were, and that should influence the treatment of other people. Check this out in Deuteronomy. This might give you a mind into what Paul is thinking. Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you where they like and in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Why? Because remember, you were slaves once. We were slaves once. We were oppressed once. Don't you oppress others the way that we were oppressed. By the way, there's something called the theology of the stranger in our land or the theology of the alien. It's very countercultural. 
That's in the Old Testament too. And it says, you, Israel, were strangers. You were once strangers in the land. Therefore, you should treat those who are strangers, those who come seeking a better life in your land, with kindness and generosity and hospitality. That's very countercultural, isn't it? That's called the theology of the stranger, the alien in the land. Look it up. The Bible is very countercultural. So Paul is doing this with Onesimus. Therefore, he writes to Philemon, verse 8, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. In other words, I'm not going to exert my authority as an apostle upon you. Doing the right thing should come from your heart. It should come from the inside out, not the outside in. You should not be conformed. You should be transformed. And that transformation is one of heart. I expect you to do the right thing, Philemon, not because I'm telling you to, but because you know it's what Christ would want you to do and what the Holy Spirit will help you to do. Okay? I remember getting in an argument with some friends. My mom came up and broke up the argument. I was a little boy. I said, okay, shake your hand. Shake hands and say you're sorry. Right? I wasn't really sorry. But I just shook his hand and said, I'm sorry because I didn't want my mom to smack me. Right? That's what Paul's saying here. Don't receive Onesimus back because you're afraid I'm going to exert the, the full force of my apostolic position on you. Do it because you know it's the right thing. It's your own heart to do. Then he goes on. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of the Gospel. Old man does not refer to his age. Old man refers to a person with wisdom. A person who has walked and followed Jesus. A person who understands and knows what it means to be a follower of Jesus to the point where he voluntarily surrendered himself to become a prisoner of the Gospel. Paul is a slave of Jesus and he's appealing to a slave of Philemon. He knows what it is like to be a slave. A slave appealing on behalf of another slave. Isn't that interesting? It gets better. Let's read on. Formerly, oh, excuse me, I appeal to you, okay, uh, prisoner of Christ, verse 10, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. The name Onesimus means one who is useful. And oftentimes, when a slave was at market, they were going to be sold. The person selling them would give them a name uh, that would help with the sale or get more money. And so if I was going to buy a slave at market, I would want to buy one who was useful. I'd pay more money for a useful slave than one who wasn't. So that was his name. One who is useful. And I appeal to you to my son, okay, my son, Paul says, because he's a spiritual son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains under house arrest in Rome. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful to both you and me. So Paul is doing here in verse 11 a play on words. Onesimus means one who is useful. But Paul says, formerly he was useless to you. Okay? Now it's very interesting. The word in the original language in the Greek for useless is one letter different from the word that means Christless. 
it is pronounced the same way. So if you were to understand that in the language and the custom of the time, what Paul would be saying is, formerly he was Christless. He was useless to you because he was Christless. Little language nuance there, huh? But now he's become useful to both you and to me. Because now he is my son in the gospel. He's a follower of Jesus. Formerly he was useless because he was Christless. Now he's useful because he's full of Christ. Verse 12, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. That is an expression, my very heart, that was unknown in ancient literature. Scholars believe this is the first time it was ever used, and it was used by the Apostle Paul. Because in ancient literature, a person of noble character was not focused on giving themselves away to somebody else for the benefit of somebody else. I pour my heart into you, Lucas. You are my very heart. You are my son. I've given everything. I've given my heart to you, right? In ancient custom and practice, that was seen as weakness. Humility was seen as weakness. Humility and servitude of somebody else on behalf of somebody else, that wasn't looked at as strength and character. Strength and character was kind of what people think in the world today strength and character is. Everything I can do for myself to elevate myself. So this whole expression, I'm sending Him who is my very heart back to you, that is countercultural. That expression is is new and fresh. It's, it's, Paul invented it to express how he poured his heart into the life of somebody else. Verse 13, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the Gospel. In other words, he's saying, you know, I'd really like him back. I'm going to send him to you because that's the right thing, but really, I'd like him back Because just as you help me in the ministry of the Gospel, He is an extension of you, and He will help me, and it's the same as you helping me. Is what Paul is saying. Without really saying it. Make sense? Then he goes on. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you would do would not seem forced, what would be voluntary. Forgiveness can't be forced. It must be voluntary. Okay? If it's going to be real and authentic and true. Perhaps the reason He was separated from you for a little while was that you might have Him back forever. No longer as a slave, but rather as... um, But better than a slave, as a dear brother. He He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. There's neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. Receive Him back as an equal. That is countercultural. It's revolutionary. And it is an assault on the institution of slavery. Not through public policy, but how people live their lives privately. Okay? Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him back as you would welcome me. Because he's my very heart. He's my son. 
He's the same as me. Just as God, right? The Son is the very representation of the Father. Here, Paul is saying, he, He's the same as me. Take Him back like you would me. And then, I, uh, excuse me, he says, verse 18, if he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me, okay? Um, let's look at Colossians 1, verses 21 through 22. Remember I said that the themes in Philemon are common to Paul's writings and the letter of Philemon was written to Philemon who's in Colossae and that you're going to see themes in Colossians and Philemon that are the same. Look at this one. Once you were alienated from God but were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. How is that made possible? At the expense of God through the giving of His very Son. Christ paid the price that we might be reconciled and be brought into right relationship ostensibly with our heavenly Master, right? God, the Father. And here Paul is modeling that by saying in verse 17, So consider me a partner, welcome in as you would me. Verse 18, if he's done any, uh, anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll pay the price for his wrongdoing. Whatever he's stolen, if he's taken anything, whatever he's cost you in productivity, charge it to my account. And of course, if you were Philemon, you would think, well, wait a minute. I'm Paul's son in the Gospel too. He doesn't owe me anything. Precisely. Just take him back. Got it? Is that good stuff? All right. It all comes down to this. Are you ready? Colossians 3. As the worship team comes forward. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourself with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. For Philemon to do what Paul was requesting, he had to clothe himself with kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, let's say this together. Can we say this together? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's say it again. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. One more time. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Amen and amen.